Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we just gather together in your house today on your Sabbath. We thank you for... We thank you for this place, this location that is your Sabbath rest. Father, it's not just a time, it's a, it's a physical place where you come to meet with us. Father, we thank you for inviting us to rest with you today. We thank you for your faithfulness to show up even when we don't. Father, we thank you for waiting for us. Lord, we ask for your words to pour forth this morning. We ask that you would open our our hearts and our ears to clearly hear you and to receive all that you have for us. We ask these things in the name of Yeshua, HaMashiach. Amen. So, I have to be honest. I had, have... A whole discussion prepared on Parsha Lech Lecha for you guys. And it had, you know, little interesting nuggets and little tidbits about Hebrew words in the section. But as I got up this morning and started getting ready to come here today, I really felt just a heavy, heavy, uh, not in a negative way, but just this outpouring of, of God's spirit and love on me. And I'm, I'm not a crier. I'm not a person that cries. Not because I'm cold-hearted or anything, but I just don't. Um, but, I mean, I have been in tears about four times today already. Not, not from anything making me sad, but just because it's like God's love pours into you and you're like a cup and it just has to go somewhere. So that's where it goes. And... As I was driving here this morning, I was thinking about the things that I had prepared for today's talk, and, and I really felt like, you know, the Lord was revealing those things to me throughout the week as I was studying and seeking His Word and will for today. And so I was wondering, Lord, how, is, how does this over here fit in with what I feel like you're, you're telling me this morning, you know, um, the, the sense that I'm getting from you? So, to be quite honest, I really don't know how this is going to go. We may get to some or all of the stuff I have prepared, and we may not, but um, I want to make sure that I leave room for whatever he puts on my heart right now. Um, And if that comes out, you know, really eloquent, and you guys are really amazed, that's fantastic. And if not, then that's okay. Like I said, wait next week, Rabbi, I'll be back, and it'll be different. So... Um, this week's Parsha is all about the story of Abraham. And um, our Parsha begins in chapter 12 with, with the call on Abraham to Lechlaha, to get up and get out. But really, Abraham's story begins a couple of verses prior. At the very end of Parsha Noah, in chapter 11, um, in verse 27, we read, um, Ela told Terah, which is... Um, these are the generations of Terah, which is Abraham's father. Now, 
we're told that Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and then we're told that Haran is the father of Lot, or Lot. Now, we know that sometime after Haran fathered Lot that he died. He passed away in the land that he was born in, in the Ur of Chaldees, which is in Babylon, in Shinar. After his death, his other two brothers, Abram and Nahor, they decide to take wives for themselves. And we're told that the name of Abram's wife is Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah, and um, that Milcah is the daughter of Haran, which is the father of Milcah and Yiscah. Okay, so right off the bat, I'm asking, who is Yiscah? This is the first time I've heard anything about Yiscah. I know, I know Lot is the son of Haran, and I know obviously that Milcah is the daughter of Haran, but now we've got this mention of Yiska. So I went to where I always go when I can't figure something out, the internet. <laughs> I googled. And um, I went specifically on the internet to um, a site where I could look back at some of the sages' writings and commentary on Torah. And what I found was interesting to me. I read on um, a commentary that Rashi wrote on this verse, and it says, Yiska, this is Sarah, also called Yiska, because she would see through divine inspiration and because all gazed at her beauty. And the two words he mentions there for see and gazed are words that are spelled almost identical to Yiska. Huh, okay. So the sages are making this connection that both Milcha and Sarai were daughters of Haran, and they were sisters to Lot. So by taking the sisters as wives, Abram and Nahor are enacting what's called Yibam, or really what they're doing is more like something called proto-Yibam, which is Leverite marriage. So if you're unfamiliar with this concept, in Judaism, if a brother passes away before he has children, then the other brother marries the, the widow, and then they has a child in his brother's name or legacy to carry on that brother's name. And in fact, we see uh, when we get to the 12 tribes that Judah's kids get in a lot of trouble for refusing to perform Leverite marriage. So if this is true, then Abram and Nahor are, are pretty much enacting the first instance of this type of, of Yibam or, or Leverite marriage. And it's not exactly the same because obviously this is not their brother's widow, this is their brother's daughters, hypothetically. But um, we see that it appears that this may be what's happening. So this is an attempt to carry on the legacy of their brother Haran. Now, as I begin to read on, you know, I mean, I take, I take the commentary with a grain of salt, and I say, okay, I need to find something else in the text to see if I can say for sure maybe this is his daughter. So as I looked at the Hebrew words for the girls' names, I found a clue, or a few clues, that was really telling. Milcah's name means queen. Sarai's name means princess or to have power as a prince. 
In fact, we see the actual meaning of Sarai's name played out in Genesis 32:28, when Jacob is wrestling with the angel. He prevails in the wrestling match, and the angel uh, says, Lo Yaakov ya mer od shimcha. No longer will your name be called Yaakov or Jacob, which means supplanter or heel catcher or restrainer. Ki'im Yisrael, Israel, but rather Yisrael. Now listen to that name, Yisrael. It's spelled exactly the same as Sarah. It's Yod, Shin, Resh, Aleph, Lamed. It's, a, it's Sarah with a Yod on the front, a little hand letter on the front, and then L, which means God. Then he says, Ki Sarita, Im Elohim ve'im anashim ve'tuchal. For as a prince, you have power with God and with men and have prevailed. When he says, as a prince, you have power, he is saying Sarai's name. Yiska means observant, one who sees or anointed. But it's also the exact same spelling for the word sukkah, which is Sukkot, which is the temporary dwellings that we make during the Feast of Sukkot. It's Sukkah with a yod in front of it. And as I thought about this, it really seemed fitting to me because Sarah would become the Sukkah for Isaac or Yitzhak. And he's a foreshadowing of Messiah, who's the seed of promise. And Isaac is the promised seed. Through Isaac, Sarah becomes the grandmother of Yaakov, who would wrestle with the angel and have his name changed to Yisrael, which seems to be made up of both Yiska and Sarah. In fact, if you take the two meanings of those names as combined uh, to make Israel, you get the anointed one who has power as a prince or the anointed prince of God. Yiska and Sarah together with God on the end is Yisrael. Now, there's another clue that I found, and I'm going to show you the slide, um, that really made me begin to focus in on Sarah as I read this Parsha. And I've never done that before. I've always read, it's always been about Abraham. I'm reading to see what Abraham is doing. Not that I obviously didn't care about Sarah, but she has her own Parsha in a few weeks, Chaye Sarah's The Life of Sarah. I'd never really looked at Lechaha from her perspective before. But the more that I studied it this week, the more I saw, I felt like the Lord was drawing my attention back to her. So, I found something in this week's Parsha that is called a atbash pattern or a chiastic structure. And if you're familiar with that, it's a literary device that's used not only in scripture but in lots of, lots of writings. Um, and it's basically where the text will repeat itself in a mirrored pattern in, a, in order to convey another meaning to you, or in order to narrow your focus into the center of that structure to show you what the most important part of the story is. 
And these are found all throughout Scripture. These are like little jewels tucked away in Scripture. Anytime you see a story where it can be the same exact words repeated at the front and end, or it can be the same uh, concepts repeated. But you'll see this in certain sections, and when you do, try to pay attention and see if you can map it out, because more likely than not, one of these chiasms are, are hiding there. So this is an example that I, I put up to show you kind of how it works. So this is the text from, from Genesis, uh, from Parsha Noach that we had last week. So you see that we see, uh, you know, in the first one, seven days, they were waiting in the ark in chapter 7, verse 4. Well, we have the same concept repeated at the very end as A2, second seven days waiting for the dove in 8.12. And as we move through chapter 7 and we map out the occurrences, we see the same things repeat in a mirrored image in chapter 8. And in the center, what you find is the verse that says, God remembers Noah. Now, those 150 days, those weren't two separate 150 days. And there was no reason for God to mention again in Scripture uh, this second seven days of waiting in B, other than to make it match this one here. To, to show us, narrowing us in towards the center of this text, which is the most important thing of this story, what you may not be paying attention to because of everything else going on around it. It's not the flood. It's not the ark. It's not the animals. It's not the rains coming down. It's not the dove or the raven. It's that God remembered Noah. These things uh, are amazing, and I, I, this is my favorite pastime. If I could figure out how to get paid to do nothing but find things like this in Scripture, I'd be set. I haven't, I haven't figured that out yet, but I'm taking offers if anyone's <laughs> available. So I'm going to show you now the, the Atbash pattern that's in this week's Parsha. It's got a little bit more to it. Um, and it's a little bit longer. But it begins basically where our Parsha begins this week, with the promise that God makes to Abram for new land and, and to give him this promised place. Now, he promises him seed, but he doesn't have any children as of yet. So as we move through the structure and we read through the story, you can see how things begin to line up. So... Lot's with him in the beginning. He goes into Canaan, and Abraham sees the land that will become his. That is mirrored on the other end by Lot being separated from him and going out of Canaan, and Lot looking up and seeing his land, which is, which is Sodom. We've got promises from God of new land on each end of the structure. And I'm mapping this out, and I'm, and I'm looking, and I'm so excited, like a, like a scratch-off, almost, like, what's going to be? What's the middle? And I get to it, and that's the middle. The Egyptians see that Sarah is beautiful, and Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's house as his wife. I mean, that's the center of this week's Parsha. Why, why, Lord, why is that the center? This is, this is Abraham's Parsha. This is his big moment. This is the introduction to the father of, of, of Judaism as we know it today, uh, not to mention the father of many nations. 
you know, he's the patriarch of the faith. This is his big story about Lech Lecha. And here, Sarah is the center of what God is showing us in this Parsha. That's fascinating to me. So I decided to stop, go back from, to the beginning, and reread with Sarah as my primary focus. And I'll leave that up there if y'all want to look at it um, while I continue to talk. So, given this, and, and also using the presumption that Rashi makes about Yiska, I decided that for the, for the intents of research, I would, I would read the Parsha also assuming that Yiska was Sarah. And I began on this journey, and so I'd like to walk you through the journey that I went on. Now, Sarah is the second daughter of Haran. Her father dies... And both she and her sister Milcha are taken in as wives by, our, by their two uncles. Now, I don't know anything about Nahor. Maybe Sarah felt like she got the jackpot win. Maybe she didn't. Uh, we don't know, but we do know that she, was, that she became married to Abram. And the very next uh, verse that we see... Um, now, keep in mind that Milka's name means queen, and Sarah's name means princess. Um, and they're taken in as wives by their, by their two uncles, who took them in a sort of Leverite marriage type of way to carry on their father's legacy, as well as their own legacy. The very next verse tells us that after this happens, we learn that Sarah is barren. Now, place yourself in her position for just a minute. Sarah's number one job at this point in time is to have a baby. Everything is riding on her carrying on her father's legacy and providing a generation after for her husband. That's, that's her main purpose in life at that moment. And she's barren. We know that Abram cares about his own legacy as well because a few chapters later, he asks God, who am I going to leave my house to? I only have this servant. You know, you haven't given me my own seed. You haven't given me my brother's seed. You haven't given me any, any seed whatsoever. I've got my, my servant in my household Lot's gone now. Lot was my last chance to have uh, a firstborn, um, you know, my, my brother's son. If I, if I took him in as my own, he could have carried on my, my legacy. But now he's, he's gone. He's in Sodom. I have n no, nothing, no one. So, as a woman, I could only imagine what she must be thinking and feeling and what insecurity she must be dealing with. Perhaps she can't help but wonder if Abram is wishing he picked the other sister. You know, her sister Milka, she gives birth to several children for Nahor. And, you know, heirs for him and lineage for her brother's, her, her dead father's name. Um, but no heir for Abram. So when we see Abram, 
move into the land of Canaan, it's no surprise that in the beginning he takes Lot with him. Because by the time they leave Haran, um, which is a city that they went to after they left Ur, they already know Sarah is barren. So Abraham leaves with Sarah, with their servants, and with Lot. Now, when Abraham gets called and gets the message for Lech Lecha, he's, he is 70 years old, I believe, 75. Now, today, we may look at 75 and we may think, that's it for him. He's done. He's not having a baby. If he hasn't a baby by now, he's not going to have one. But you have to remember, his father was 75 when he had him and his, three, and his two brothers. So it's not like Abraham's counting himself out yet. But there's a problem of Sarah. Now, when they approach, they move through Canaan. Abraham receives the promise of, of seed, of many nations, of land, all these things. And they start heading south, and lo and behold, there's a famine. And as they, they decide to go down into Egypt, as they approach the border to Egypt, uh, Abraham pulls Sarah aside, and he says, Hey, look, I know that you are so beautiful that as soon as any of the Egyptians get a look at you, I know they're going to kill me so they can have you. So, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I think what we should do is we should tell them that you're my sister. So that way, um, instead of being mean to me because of you, they'll be really nice to me because of you. Because maybe they'll think that I'll give you to them in marriage. So they'll be good to me. Now, I've got to tell you, I don't think I would take that as well as Sarah seemed to. You know? I mean, Sarah's getting up there at this point. And yeah, she's still beautiful, but that doesn't mean anything. If your husband doesn't want you, if you feel like you're not worthy, if you feel like God has forgotten you, and here Sarah is struggling with all of these things, knowing that Abram has received this promise for nations and seed and, and all of these things. And here she is, you know, he just, he's her uncle. He took her in out of the kindness of his heart. And, and you know, he's got to have a, an heir, and she can't do that. And now they're headed into Egypt, and he has just asked her to say she's his sister so that the people in Egypt will treat him kindly because they, think, they might think that Abraham will let them marry her. If I'm Sarah, I have to be wondering, what's he going to do when we get to Egypt and somebody does want to marry me? How's he going to save me from that? Is he planning to save me from that? Maybe he just wants a new wife from Egypt. And... You know, maybe he's looking to, to trade me off for a newer, better functioning model. I can imagine that the rest of the walk into Egypt was long and quiet.
So they get down to Egypt, and Abram was right. Sarah is so beautiful that all the men in Egypt just can't believe it. And word gets back to Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh decides that he wants Sarah to come and be one of his wives in his harem. Now, whenever I read a story in Scripture, I like to play a little game that I've never read this before. Because this can be really difficult. As we read these stories over and over every year, it may lose some of the amazement to us because we know exactly what's going to happen. But if you've never picked this book up, if you've never read it before, then you're sitting here right now on the edge of your seat. Will he have a seed? Is he going to get rid of Sarah? Is she going to murder him before they get to Egypt? (laughs) So if I've never read this story before, and I see that Pharaoh has decided he wants to take Sarah as a wife into his harem, and and I stop and I close the book and I'm just riddled with anxiety over it, and I would think to myself, surely at this point, Abram's going to say, wait, stop, I can't do this. She's my wife, I can't let you have her, you know, that's against God's will or way, and, and you know, you, I can't lie to you anymore about it. She's my wife. I was scared people were going to kill me, but, you know, this has gone on too far. And then you crack the book back open to see what happens next, And what do we read? It says, And Abram is given sheep and cattle and donkeys and servants and camels and who knows what else. And Sarah's at Pharaoh's house. So Sarah's fears have come to fruition. Abraham didn't stop Pharaoh's servants from taking Sarah to be the wife of the king. Not how sure someone could stop Pharaoh from doing something, but at least I would have hoped to see some gallant effort on Abraham's part, you know, some kill me if you have to, or all that stuff we read about as little girls in fairy tales. Abram's got this promise from God of seed and land and nation. He's got Lot as a backup plan. And he's got this ever-growing pile of stuff and animals and servants. But he doesn't have a child yet. And Abraham has shifted his thinking. He is no longer considering Sarah his wife and the person whom that promise will come through. Now, whether this is exactly how Abram felt or not, I don't know. I'm just speculating here based on how I think people in that situation might respond. But I find it very easy to believe that this may be perhaps exactly how Sarah felt. And I wonder what her thoughts must have been that first night in Pharaoh's house. You know, Sarah didn't have to lie to the Egyptians, she could have told them the truth. And let the chips fall where they may. But I think that Sarah, I think she felt like she, she really didn't have a lot of worth to Abram at this point, or a lot of value. Not in a begrudging way, in a genuine way. You know, he, he has these dreams and ambitions, and God's promised him these things, and 
there's no reason he should be tied to me when I can't give him those things. And I think that the last thing she wanted to see was Abram murdered on her account. So she went along with it. And it's not exactly like Sarah gets thrown in a pit or sold to a caravan of merchants. I mean, she is going to Pharaoh's palace. So it's, it's you know, best case scenario for getting traded out into Egypt when you think about it. Maybe. And as we get to this point in the story, I imagine that no one guesses what's going to happen next. Not us, not the characters in the story, not when it happened in real life. Because God intervenes on Sarah's behalf. God has a plan. And God's plan is not like man's plan. God's not limited by your circumstance. He's not limited by the things that you see as barriers. He doesn't see you the way you see you. And God is a God of showing himself strong in our weaknesses. Barren ground, great. God does his best work in barren ground and dirt that nobody else wants or thinks is worth anything. All you have to do is look at the Jewish people to see the kind of atmosphere that God likes to work in. Nobody wanted them. World War II, Germany didn't want them. France didn't want them. Europe didn't want them. When they showed up on boats at the harbors here, the U.S. didn't want them. We sent them back. You know, I looked it up. I googled. And between the years of 250 A.D. and 1948 A.D., the Jews have been expelled from 109 different nations. And that's when you lump all of, all of the occupied Nazi territory together as one. It still is 109. It's no big surprise that the nation of Israel's beginning, the time just before their conception, that we would see this common characteristic between them and Sarah. So what happens? God sends this plague, imagine this, a plague on Pharaoh's house in Egypt. A plague. Who's ever heard of that? (laughs) Sounds familiar. The plague is so bad that Pharaoh can't wait to get rid of Sarah and Abram and everybody else along with him. Now, listen to what Pharaoh says to them. There are these things... This microphone is difficult. There are these things in Scripture... uh, Well, they're not things, it's text. But I like to call them hyperlinks. Like on the internet, when you click and it takes you somewhere else. Because God has this in Scripture. He repeats certain phrases and words over and over again throughout this whole entire story of the Bible. And that repetition is meant to take you to somewhere else in Scripture where you've seen that before. And this Parsha is is riddled with hyperlinks. So listen to what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh's plague is raining on his house. We're not told what it is, but it's bad. I can just see Pharaoh dragging Sarah out by the arm like, you got to go. You have to go. Takes her back to Abraham 
and he said, and he gets to Abraham and he says, Mazot Asita, what have you done? Now, only Holly, I guess, could tell me if I'm saying the words right or not. Uh, everybody else probably just assumes I'm pronouncing it right. Shh, Holly, don't tell. Now, this is familiar. This, this phrase is, is something that's repeated in Torah over and over again. And every time you see it repeated, you can bet that it's somehow connected with all the other places you see it. The next thing Pharaoh says is, Lama lo higata li ki ishtecha he. Hi. Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Now notice the word higata. That comes from hagada, which is the Passover. It means story. Hagada means story. He says, why didn't you tell me that that was your wife? Now, these words are familiar if you read scripture in Hebrew, I guess they're familiar, because they're the exact same words that God spoke to Eve in the garden. Genesis 3.13, Vayomer Adonai Elohim la'isha, God says to the woman, mazot asit, what have you done? And the woman answered, the serpent, he beguiled me. And I did eat. In other words, he told me a story, a Haggadah. Whereas now it's Pharaoh who says to Abraham, Lama lo Haggadah, why didn't you tell me a story? You, there was a story that you were supposed to tell me, and it was a true story. Why didn't you tell me what the truth was? What have you done? Pharaoh says, why'd you say to me, she's my sister, so I took her as my wife? Then he says, Kach velech, take and go. That sounds uncoincidentally similar to lech laha, which is God's command to Abraham. Now, Pharaoh is standing here confirming to Abraham and Sarah that God himself is preserving this union by his own hand, his own outstretched hand, smiting Pharaoh's house with a plague. Pharaoh delivers Sarah back to Abram and he says, here's your wife, not your sister, your wife and all your stuff. Now get out. Now I imagine that the walk back to Bethel was even more silent and long than the walk down to Egypt. So Abram takes Sarah and Lot and all the donkeys and camels he got for her and all the servants that he gained from that trade. And they head back up into Canaan. If I never read this story before, I'd surely be thinking to myself, now they, pro sh now they know. Surely now they know that God is making these promises to Abram and Sarah, his wife, is, will be the one that this fulfillment comes through. Like, how can they not know? Plagues, in Egypt, have they not heard the Passover story? No, that hasn't happened yet. But still, it's a big deal. Plagues in Egypt. I also wonder to myself, if I'm Abraham, really, and I believe so strongly in God's calling on me and God's promises to me of land and seed, that I pick up and move in the desert from Babylon to Canaan, if I believe him so much, 
why would I be so afraid that God's going to allow me to be killed before the promises can be fulfilled? This is like an irrational fear on Abraham's part. Unless maybe he kind of still is trying to get rid of Sarah. Or maybe he was thinking that when they went down to Egypt. It's hard to know exactly what he was thinking. I guarantee you when I get to heaven, I'm going to find out. My husband jokes all the time, nobody else can be able to talk to anybody. They're going to be standing in line. You're just going to be standing there asking a million questions. People say, I think when you get there, you probably know everything. I don't want to know everything. I want to be able to be told the story and find out like a, like a little child. Tell me what happened next. But we don't know what Abraham was thinking because we're not him. We're not in Abraham's shoes. Or are we? Are we in a situation similar to Abraham? Just as God called Abraham out of the land of Chaldea, God's placed a call on each and every one of us here today. It's a call to come away on a journey with him. To leave behind the land of your nativity, a land of idolatry, a land of barrenness, a land with no promises, and to come into this place of promise that he's preparing. God's made promises to us. Promises of, of fruitfulness and blessings of his seed and his son. But he didn't say anything about it being easy. Or quick. Or without struggle. But he's called just the same. So, how do we measure up on this scale of faith? You know, how are we doing in comparison to Abraham? Are we like Abraham, dragging metaphorical lot around with us? Thinking that this thing or this person is who our blessings are going to come through or part of God's plan for us, but really all they're bringing is strife and contention and causing us to doubt the very blessings that God has given us in the first place? Or are we like Sarah? We look at our own barrenness, our own shortcomings, the things that we may see as a negative. And we put we put God in this box that says he can't possibly use us to accomplish his work. I, um, the last time Rabbi was out of town, I was speaking and I gave a message on Parsha Kedoshim, which is the Holy Ones. And I talked about what does holiness mean? And we have all these grand ideas of holiness, and maybe it's wearing, you know, a certain outfit, a, a, a garment, or it's, you know, kneeling like this, or bowing like this, or doing these things. But it's nothing external. Holiness is not external. And, and the concept of holiness is to be set aside in reserve for a, a special ordained usage. Not common. Not for everyday it's like a, a set of fine china. 
And as I read this week's Parsha, I couldn't help but draw the conclusion that Sarah's womb was holy. It had a special purpose. And if Sarah's womb is holy, Sarah is holy too. You know, we're told in the, in, in the Brit Hadashah about the body of believers and how we're all different pieces and we come together to make this one body. You know, and that's this beautiful concept for us. But we're all silently thinking like, oh, that's great, but I don't really want to be like the pinky toe. Like, can my part in the body be something other than the pancreas, you know? It doesn't have to be like the eyes or the mouth or anything that has to work all the time. Just, you know, I don't know, something good, like, like maybe a thumb. But the truth is we don't get to pick what part we are. We're the, we're the pot, not the potter. And when God sets something aside for his own special use and makes it holy unto himself... That holy item may sit there in his china cabinet for 2,000 years. and He may not use it because there's one moment in time that it was created for. You may wait an entire lifetime to find out what that thing is that you were meant for in that certain way. You know, Abraham continues on in his journey, and, you know, God bless him, he just makes the same mistakes over and over again. Plagues in Egypt, people, and he comes out of, out of Egypt, and within three chapters, he has made the exact same mistake again and, and made Sarah say that she's his sister to another guy named Abimelech who takes Sarah as his wife. Now, by this time, look, listen, ladies, Sarah's like, Sarah's getting old at this point, but she is still so beautiful that the men wherever Abimelech are are going to kill Abraham, <laughs> are going to kill Abraham to have her. I don't know what kind of skincare regimen this woman is using, <laughs> but you are, the hot, sandy desert that will age anybody. And here's Sarah. She's still, she's still so beautiful. Just like us, we make the same mistakes over and over again. I know that we love to read scripture and we, we look at the Israelites on their journey and we just think, huh, so silly. They would only learn as we make our fifth lap around the same mountain that God is dealing with us over. You know, and let's not forget the Hagar incident. I mean, we can't leave that out. You know, that is a huge one. Imagine that, okay, let's say Sarah really was thinking this whole time. Maybe Abram just wants to get a new wife in Egypt. You know, maybe he's like, maybe he likes the way Egyptian girls look, or, you know, he's got like an Egyptian name picked out for his kid. I'm not real sure, but maybe that's what he really wants. And then, 
a moment happens where Sarah decides, and I, I, I swear I don't understand this. She says to Abraham, why don't you just take my Egyptian maid and sleep with her and make a baby? And I wonder, did she say it like that or was it like, well, why don't you just take my maid and make a baby? You know, I wonder, did she say it like, go ahead and make my day, or did she say it like, I, I'm, I'm tired of trying? Not, not necessarily in the sense you might be thinking, maybe she was tired of trying, but tired of the disappointment, you know? The disappointment, if, if any of you have ever worked and tried unsuccessfully to conceive, I have a, a cousin who's like a sister to me dealing with this right now. And the disappointment every month. And maybe Sarah's just tired. One of the things that happens is when... They make the same mistake again, and she tells Abimelech that she's his sister, and he takes her as his wife. God brings another plague. God actually shows up and meets with Abimelech first and tells him, look, this is, this is what's going on. And Abimelech's like, I, I, you know, I swear, I swear I didn't know. And we find out what the plague is this time. We're told that God locked up the wombs of every woman in Abimelech's house. To me, this is like the final sign to Abram and Sarah. If you, if you ever had a doubt that I have control over a, a womb becoming open or closed, here's your sign. God is in control of life and death. That's, that's his doing. And Sarah's womb was holy. It had one job. It had one moment in time. Sometimes God never unlocks the womb. Not, not in this life, not that we can see here in the natural. But we're the vessel. We're the, we are the holy thing that has been set aside by him. And it really doesn't do a lot of good to question the potter on what he made us for and why. Sarah's in the waiting season in this week's Parsha. And it's very easy in the waiting season to grow disheartened and weary. The hope she maybe once had that she would be the person that God brought Abram's seed through is really starting to dwindle, if not has already been snuffed out. And we all know that waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. I'm a doer. So if I've got a task and I'm, you know, there's pressure on and it's time to get down to it, that's me. I work, 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 work. But Wait? Just wait? 
don't do anything. Just wait. Idle hands, you know the saying. But to God, and, and this is the part that just blows my mind about him, it's not about the finish line to him. It's not about the end result for him. It's the journey. It's all the in-between that happens between the time he promised you and the time the promise comes true. Do you think that whole period of waiting was just God was busy doing other things or God just wanted to see how long they would wait? No. Everything that Abraham and Sarah went through, I want you to see this, every single thing that Abraham did that we just go, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Every single one of those moments prepared him for the moment of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Because every single time he was disobedient or he acted out of fear, fear of, of losing this, this promise that God gave him, this thing he wanted so bad more than anything, this baby. By the time he gets to the binding of Isaac, God is asking him to do the hardest thing. The hardest thing. This is the child. This is the one. And God's asking me to offer him up as a sacrifice. Now, Abraham had hope, and he had enough faith, at least enough to get him up that mountain that God was going to resurrect him if he, if he asked him to kill him, because God, uh, Abraham believed God's promises. But that entire journey from leaving Ur of the Chaldees, you know, through Egypt, back up, Abimelech's house, everything Abraham went through strengthened his faith for that moment. Because that one moment is the biggest moment out of everything else Abraham did. That one story in Scripture will be what countless Jewish people look at one day, and when they read it, the lights will come on, and they'll remember about this guy, Yeshua, they heard about. They'll be saying to their Christian friend or their believer friend, God does not believe in, in human sacrifice. You know, you don't, you don't spill human blood. This is blasphemy. This is apostasy. And someone will say, what about Isaac? What about the ram? If it ever counted for Abraham to be obedient, it was that moment. And God used every other circumstance to work on Sarah and to work on him and to work in them and, and, and work healing and work faith. Everything they needed to carry out what he had for them next. You know, Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead as far as bringing life comes, goes. They were old. I know it wasn't probably all that old back then because people lived a long time, but that's old. I, you know, I'm 35. I don't, I don't want to start over and have another baby. My oldest is 15. Like, I can't imagine going back to diapers. Abraham's 90-something when they have Isaac, and Sarah's right around that same age. Now, if you, do you think that if God 
had only made Sarah, made Sarah wait this long, and, and she'd have conceived Isaac when she was in her 40s or her 50s or maybe even her 60s or 70s, that anybody would have looked at that and said, undeniably, that is God. No. It would have been like, oh, it's a fluke, you know, older ladies can get pregnant, you know, it's not that big a deal. But God waited until the situation was so desperate, was so dead, so without hope, that when he did it, every person knew that was God. When you come to a place when there's no possible reason to hope, when everything around you points to the end when you've reached the end of the rope of your own power, look up, because your redemption is coming. You see, in the total absence of us, when we have been stripped down, when everything we thought about ourselves that was good or bad or indifferent, when it has come falling down, that's the place where there's enough room for God to work the miracle that he's about to work. We're so puffed up with positive and negative thoughts about ourselves, about our families, about the people around us, the world around us, our own abilities. There's no room for him to bring down the big thing he's about to put right there. Now, not only does Sarah's journey set the tone for the journey of the Israelites, because her journey is a pattern for what the nation goes through. And I hope that you'll take time maybe this week or next and dig that out and see if you can see that for yourself. But it's shortly after they come out of Egypt that God tells Abraham, your descendants are going to go into Egypt and be slaves for 400 years. Would that have happened if Abraham had not let Sarah go to Pharaoh's house? I don't know. But either way, even if it was Abraham's mistake, it is the opportunity for God to show himself strong. And the plagues that he brings down and the, and the exodus of the children of Israel, that story has lasted lifetimes. That is, that is a siren to his people of his faithfulness. Now, Sarah's in the waiting season, and so are we. In our own lives, through various things, we, we're waiting always on, on something. But in the grander scheme of things, we collectively, as the body, as the pinky toe and the thumb and the pancreas and all that together, we are in the waiting season. We're waiting for him to return. You know, some days I feel like I can't wait anymore. Like I'm so weary of, of hanging on to that sudden anticipation of, of yearning. It's almost like it's too much sometimes. I have to turn the volume down on it, you know? Like it's just... It's so hard to live in this world some days to see the things that people are doing to each other. 
And, and of course, we want them to come right now because we're impatient and we don't like to wait. But God's not making us wait just to make us wait. You know, he's not sitting up there on the throne like, you know, oh, that's five more minutes. You know, like I do my kids, oh, don't say anything else. It's going to be three more minutes in the corner, you know. God works in that in-between space, you know? Nature tells us this. You till the ground, you plant the seed, you water it, and then we go outside and want to pick fruit next week. But that's not how it works. If trees were like us, they'd wear themselves slap out before they even sprouted the first little bud, let alone a fruit. Just, just over there in the ground, just striving to produce fruit. They don't do that. That's what we do. I'm just working so hard to do nothing. Because I can't do it. Our call in this in-between season is also to lech laha. We are called to lech laha. We're called to get up and get going. You know, it's not always to the same place or to the same people or to do the same thing, but we all have a call. And we're supposed to, to spend this time strengthening our faith and holding fast to his promises. We're going to hang on to the people that he's put in our path and the things that he's given us that he wants us to carry with us. We're not going to let them go because maybe we don't see the value or because maybe we think, oh, maybe it's going to be this way. It's our job to figure out and ask him, what are the things that you want me to carry? And then I'll keep those. It's also our job to let go of everything he did not tell us to bring with us. I know that anybody sitting here today, especially if you're, if you're two steps into this journey into into walking out toward Messianic Judaism. I know that some of you, like me, probably tried to drag several people with you on this journey. You know, you just, the truth is the truth, and it can only do one thing, and that sets you free. And, and, I, and I want my friends and I want my family to get it. <coughs> but maybe God didn't tell you to drag those people along here behind you. Maybe it's not time for them. <coughs> it's also our job not to let fear, self-doubt, riches of the world, or massive herds of livestock derail us from obedience to his calling. Abraham's fear became stronger than his belief in God's promise, and it caused him to do things that he shouldn't have done. Now, it didn't void his promise, and God didn't wash his hands of him, but the consequences for Abraham's mistakes are ones we are still feeling today. Ishmael, Keturah, all those other children... We truly, truly do not know when he's going to return. There's some people who think they know, but I don't think any of us know. 
when he's going to return. And until he comes back, I'm going to wait for him and wait for his promises. And if that means I have to stand there and do nothing while I wait, then that's what I'm going to do. I'd rather stand there and wait and do nothing than make the wrong move, metaphorically speaking. That doesn't mean I'm literally going to do nothing until he gets here, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not going to... I'm not going to let my looking up for his coming make me stumble on what's right in front of me. I've got to pay attention to what he wants me to do right now. <clears throat> you know, it's easy for us to dissect what the, what the people in Scripture do and don't do. It's easy for us to point at that and say, how could they not... Why would they make that golden calf in the wilderness? I mean, all those plagues through the Red Sea, God brings them out, uh, uh, you know, whole together as one nation, kills Pharaoh's men, and, you know, we're, we're however many days into the wilderness and let's make an idol. It's easy for us to look at that and say, how could they not know? But, but let me point something out to you. Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and all the people we read about in Scripture they did not have the benefit of the written word of God at their disposal. They did not have the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit inside of them. They did not have running water and air conditioning. And that alone is enough to make me think of selling a family member. But we have those things. We have all of those things. We have so many gifts and blessings from the Lord. And we're accountable for that. What are we doing with that? Are we making better choices than Abraham and Sarah made? Or are we making the same choice? We're going to be accountable for that, people. You're accountable. I will be accountable. <coughs> As the time of his return draws closer and closer, I can promise you, Whatever role he created each and every one of us for is going to become more and more dire and more and more urgent. And the call will be more and more pressing. And the consequences for refusing to answer that call will become more and more severe. It may feel like everything's just continuing on like it's been, especially here in this country. But the end is drawing near. This waiting season is almost over. And we need to be serious about what God has asked of us and the call he's placed on our lives. Don't worry about what he's doing with so-and-so's life. Peter asking what's going to happen to John. Don't worry about, you know, what's happening with, with Hagar's womb. God has made you for a specific purpose. You are a holy vessel unto him. You need to focus on what he has for you. And if you don't know yet, then you need to get on your knees every single day. We, sh we should all be doing that anyway. God, what is it today that you would like me to do? What do you have for me today? Whose life am I supposed to touch? What steps am I supposed to take? Heavenly Father, your name is holy. 
and your people you have created to be holy. Father, we pray for your kingdom to come. We want to see your kingdom. We pray for your will to be done here on earth, exactly as it's being done in heaven. God, we stand before you as little children asking for you to give us just what we need for today. Father, it's the cry of our heart that you would so bind our footsteps to yours that we would not fall into the pit of temptation and sin against you. Deliver us from evil, not for our own sake, Abba, but for your sake, for your glory and your name. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.